This August, the Asian American Literary Festival was to take place in Washington, D.C. The long-standing event had been on hiatus because of the pandemic, so this year's event had generated a lot of buzz. Organized by the Smithsonian Asian Pacific American Center, APAC, the event had already garnered substantial investments and expectations from both national and international groups and states. The Washington Post reports that Kaya Press had expected $22,000 in income for producing several festival events. The small nonprofit publisher had built its budget for the next fiscal year around it. Kundaman, a literary nonprofit, had expected $10,000 in Smithsonian funds for its programming work. The governments of Australia and New Zealand had invested $63,000 in funds for programs they had organized in and around the festival, which included a 10-day residency, reading with New Zealand's Poet Laureate and events at the New Zealand Embassy. Thus, there was considerable shock, dismay, and outrage when interim director Yao Fan Yo abruptly cancelled the entire festival without a word of explanation. The Washington Post and other sources have hinted that it might be because of potentially controversial content. The Washington Post wrote, according to emails shared with the Post, Yo notified Lawrence Min Bui Davis, the festival's director since its founding in 2017, and a curator at the Smithsonian that, quote, due to the current political climate, Smithsonian leadership had requested that all upcoming exhibitions and multi-day programs be reviewed under a policy known as Smithsonian Directive 603, which is meant to help identify any potentially sensitive or controversial content and prepare for potential responses from the public. On today's show, we speak with Chingen Chun, a poet who is curating a festival event featuring books by trans and non-binary writers, and Kate Howe, a program coordinator on contract with the Smithsonian for the festival, about the controversy and about the issues it raises about art for the community versus art that must conform to state institutional preferences and politics. We discuss why this festival is absolutely essential for the present day, where we have Asian Americans being used to help dismantle affirmative action, and where we see persistent and deadly acts of anti-Asian violence. We also hear about possible plans to go forward without the Smithsonian, and ways we can help support the artists and organizers. Speaking Out of Place is produced in collaboration with the Creative Process and is made with kind support from Stanford University. I alone am responsible for its content. Thank you both for being on the show. This is such an important issue, and it raises so many issues, both specific to the festival, but also in terms of museums, art, the creation of art, and especially the involvement of public institutions, which, of course, have a huge amount of material resources, but then seem detached from the very public they're supposed to be serving, aiming their programming toward another public entirely. Talk about the cancellation what the heck is going on to the best of your knowledge? What the heck is going on? I have that question too. I, I know the sort of bare bones facts of what I've experienced and what so many of the other programming partners and participating artists have experienced. And then outside of that, I know very little about why the decision to cancel was made and why the Smithsonian has just been putting out lies after lies to explain the cancellation. Quick recap of it. July 5th, which was a Wednesday, that evening, I got an email as someone who was working with APAC on a contractor basis. I received an email that evening around like 7 p.m. that was just subject line, stop work notice. 
the email was like three sentences. It was like an official notice to stop any and all work you're doing on the festival. From this point forward, you're not contractually allowed to continue working on the festival and see the forwarded message below the why. And the forwarded message below was the very brief email from the acting director that went out to some of the partners that basically said, oh, the festival is not going to happen. Sorry for the inconvenience. And that is, to this day, the extent of direct communication I've gotten from anyone in a position of leadership at the Smithsonian about why this cancellation occurred. We've reached out to Ms. Yelfen Yo, who is the acting director of the Asian Pacific American Center at the Smithsonian, to see if she wanted to make any comments with regard to this discussion. And she declined to make any comment. At that point, how long had you been working on this project yourself? Yeah, I have been working actively on the festival since January of this year. Wow. So, Chingen, how does the news come to you? It did it. I didn't even got the email. So I only heard about it through other community partners that the festival was canceled. I didn't even get the courtesy of an email. Get away from You're kidding. What was your involvement in the festival? How had you been part of the planning and organizing? So I was invited in 2019 to give a secret history talk by Jennifer Chang. And the goal of that program was to highlight underappreciated or underrecognized artists within our community. And I mm-hmm. chose Mark Abuhar. And I also used that as an opportunity to really ask my fellow curators and teachers how many trans and non-binary and gender creative writers and artists they include in their syllabi and their curriculum. Mm-hmm. And if they weren't including folks to think about including them. So the program that I was working on, which was the trans and non-binary reading room, came out as a response to that request. So Lawrence reached out to me and brainstormed about, yeah, how could we encourage that to happen? Mm. And so the trans and non-binary reading room came out of it. I'd like to have you both talk about exactly who were the people or what kinds of people were you actually recruiting into this effort? What kinds of vision did you both have about what needed to be present at a festival like this? Kate, maybe you could go first. The spirit of the Asian American Literature Festival, as I've known it, one aspect of the spirit of the festival that is really central to me is just an extremely expansive approach. What even is Asian American literature? Who who are the producers and the audiences that fall under that category and, and get to engage with it? So I think expansiveness is a big one for me. I think when we were working on building the program, there is a theme for the festival. The theme was ghost worlds. And there were a lot of programs that were thinking specifically about ghosts, whether that's literally, figuratively, like the act of haunting, how that appears in our literature. But then there were also programs that like didn't even necessarily tie directly to that theme, but by the nature of being brought together under this umbrella of ghost world is like this broader world building experiment of what happens when we bring artists and writers of all different Asian backgrounds together under one umbrella doing like all different kinds of things. Mm-hmm. There were readings and panels that's typical for a festival, but also like reading room installation. There's someone was doing a sound installation. Mm-hmm. Someone was curating a haunted house with several different like oh, live cool. stations that were going to be just like ephemeral experiences for people to, to walk through. So just like all different kinds of programming that are thinking way outside of like what you like to do in as a Asian American literary space. Right. And Chingen? So I'll say that the reason I was really excited to be involved in the 2023 festival is because of my experience in the 2019 festival. Mm. I, there were a lot of ways that the thinking behind the programming broke out of that box. 
that Kate is talking about. And it felt like the ethos was more about what can we do together now that we're all gathered here together mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and really gathering across the community and gathering a lot of different kinds of folks. So that's what I really loved about that 2019 festival. So the program that I was working on was coming up with a list of the wide array of books that mm-hmm. are published by trans and non-binary and gender disabled Asian Americans and other BIPOC authors, and then working with the festival bookstore, royalty bookstores, to buy copies of the books for the reading room, and then to have a program where festival goers could interact with the book, and then also have readings of the book, collection wow. readings of the book. Yeah. And then also collaborating with teachers to discuss how to, to include those books within syllabi, how okay. to teach those books, and also showcasing a reading of trans and non-binary authors. And then one program that I was really excited about was to have a conversation about mentorship. Because I wow. think one of the things that's been really challenging for me as a trans person within study is that we don't have a lot of folks who have successfully, for instance, made it in academia. Right? Yep. I, I can't really think of too many full professors who identify the way because of lots of reasons barriers over academy. So in terms of mentorship, it feels like I've had to really outside that box. And so I wanted to have that conversation with my mentee to talk about what does it look like now? And mm-hmm. also how are ways that can nurture that mentorship? So many things to say about what you both said. One is that my colleague Marcy Kwan did a conference on Asian American art last year. And the predominant question perhaps was what's Asian American, right? Exactly asking the questions of where are the boundaries, who sets them, what other ways might we imagine it? And so what I loved about what you both said was the creativity, the energy, the imagination, the pressing the boundaries, everything art is supposed to be, right? And, and the other part that I like a lot is the educational mentorship issues, right? Because again, we're at a time when that's exactly where the right is centering its attacks on education, on thinking, on imagining all these things, which you would think a liberal institution, at least attested like the Smithsonian would be all for, right? Because you're not asking, as far as I know, for revolution. That's not going to be a program for upturning everything. It's rather what art's supposed to do, which is to present alternatives and give people the opportunity to make their own choices, right? To realize that there are choices in life rather than only a select menu. So could you talk a little bit about this tension that we see emerging, not just here, but elsewhere between, again, well-endowed museums with resources and with a modicum of goodwill. They set up this festival. They put a platform underneath you and then all of a sudden they take it away. And without any accountability to the community, without any even marginal transparency. And of course, when you don't have that, it's a fertile ground for rumors and speculation and all this. And some of the things I heard, and you don't have to confirm or deny it, but you can comment on it, was that maybe the director was frightened about some of the things you were doing. Again, when she doesn't say anything, it's fair game to imagine. But what's your sense of this tension and how do you see it playing out in this particular festival? Yeah, APAC has always been, in, in my experience and view, a very unusual museum space, which I mean in like the best way possible. My relationship with APAC staff started in 2018 when I did a summer internship with them. And even from that moment, I saw really it inspired and also my worldview was broken open by seeing the kind of approach they took to community-based work, especially from the position of being a part of a national institution. And I remember at that point, at least, it, it 
many people would often refer to itself as a museum without walls, quote unquote, both literally in the fact that they didn't have a building and they weren't a, like a collecting institution. And like figuratively, like I think in the way that the curators approached their practices and in the, the sort of relationship building work they did, it was very much this practice of working beyond walls. And so I think that tension that you're describing with this particular case of the literature festival and its cancellation. Yeah, the festival was built to be a collective effort. Like it's primarily funded by the Smithsonian. It's the sort of central hub of the sort of logistical organizing is being done by APAC staff. But like in terms of the dreaming work, the ideating work, the sort of relationship work, it is way beyond just the sphere of what's happening within the Smithsonian. And the ethos of it is one of co-governance, that decision-making around what this festival is, what it represents, what kind of world we want to build within the realm of this festival. That's up to all the partners. Everyone makes a contribution to that. And we can see that the Smithsonian, as the primary funder of the festival, has this power to make an unilateral decision and say it's canceled and then it just is canceled. Even though it's still very weird to me, like two weeks out to wrap my head around it because the actual sort of community infrastructure to make it happen is it's all there. Like you were just one month out, like everything was there. It's literally just like the power they mm-hmm. have to just say the word canceled and that's it. That gets to the core of what the tension of doing work that is so fundamentally thinking about the challenges and the exciting possibilities of doing community-based work within this particular institutional setting. Yeah, I, I'm so glad you mentioned the issue of power because it's the same in all institutions one way or the other, but especially in educational type institutions, we're supposed to be thoughtful people, right? And so often in universities, they say, well, you know, we can do this, we could do that. And our response is, you can do it, but should you do it? <laughs> you know, aren't we supposed to be moral and ethical beings, not just functionaries? And again, and especially, and this is why it's so ironic and sad and tragic, in art, art is supposed to be a place where people are given a little time and a little space to breathe and to imagine differently. And we're not going to upset the apple cart. But on the other hand, it kind of shows they're frightened of something. I think we need to bear that in mind. So Chingham, do you want to talk a little bit about museums and communities and power and what we've just been talking about? What are some of your thoughts? Yeah, so there were three reasons given for the cancellation. The first, what I would think of as logistical. And I know that things that have been presented may not be true. And honestly, I come from a more scrappy community organizing place where we just figured it out. Like if you didn't have an AV thing, you just figured it out. So those two issues I feel are not a huge deal, I guess. And it stopped the festival canceled. It also shocked me that the staff and also the community partners weren't consulted in the decision at all. And then no communication. So that definitely feels like just a big powerful institution taking away and pulling the plug where a lot of the work that had been yeah. done was made acknowledged. So the third issue, potentially sensitive or controversial content, which the trans and non-binary reading room was one of the programs that was on the report that was submitted, the Smithsonian Directive 603, to identify potentially sensitive or content. And I'm not on the staff, but my understanding was that it was submitted that day and then the email canceled the festival came that night. So in terms of the political climate right now, I would just say that trans communities are under attack, trans youth specifically. And then I think teaching these topics from K-12 and also in the university is under attack as well. Yep. So I think that it's really upsetting to have your identity and a community a part of be told that you're controversial for existing, right, for being there. And then 
the idea that this is something that can get the whole festival canceled because it's part of the festival is also upsetting. So, yeah. Yeah. So one thing I will say is I do appreciate about this community is that this community came together and said no one in our community can be canceled. You know, trans and non-binary community members and authors are part of our community and we are together. So that's something that I don't think always happens you know, the ethos. No, absolutely. That's so important. And two things. One is you mentioned this little code or bureaucratic tag that you happen to fall into. My suspicion is they probably thought of doing this long before, right? All they need is that trigger, that alibi, that bureaucratic clothing to do this, they being whoever they are. And the other thing is we're not talking about the Trump White House. I mean, if Donald Trump was president, you say, yeah, you know, I mean, you probably wouldn't even have a festival. He would have cut all the budget. But this is the problem with liberals. They set up this little playground or whatever, and you think, just let it be. How long is the festival going to be? What, three days or something? I don't know. It would come, it would leave, it would create a legacy, etc. And yet they are so freaked out about not necessarily what would even happen, but the political pressure, right? That they just don't want to be targeted by Jim Jordan or whoever else or Rick DeSantis. It's a political thing and they don't have any alibi. So they're using the thinnest alibi possible. And the other thing that both of you mentioned, either directly or indirectly, the Asian American presence at the Smithsonian has a long history. It's been some great directors. There's been long periods where things worked very well. And this is a really dangerous and troubling sign when an interim director, right, somebody who's even there under temporary arrangements can have such power and she only has such power because there are complicit people around and above her. And this is really a problem. I'd like you to both think about why is this festival so important to have at this particular moment? And I tell you where I'm coming from because I just got off taping a show with Jeff Chang. And we talked a lot about how the whole attack on affirmative action through this Ed Bloom group really leveraged Asian Americans as proxies for elite whites. And they did that by playing the minority card, which we pointed out in the show, really came out in 1966 article by a sociologist named William Peterson, New York Times, the Asian American success story. And Jeff and I pointed out 65 was the year of the Watts uprising. And there was a really concerted effort to say, hey, Asian Americans, listen, the Japanese Americans were put in concentration camps. They have the most recent reason to feel aggrieved. They're not protesting and they're succeeding wildly. So the real path toward minority success is to shut up and do your job, right? And so the attack on affirmative action was play off that notion of Asian Americans as a buffer or even a wedge against other groups. And the festival that you have put together, again, is a repudiation of that nonsense, right? It's saying there are all sorts of lines of solidarity in terms of class, gender, sexual press, any number of things, which you have done so much work to put together. And I think that's why it's important to have it. And you've all of a sudden been thrown out of the realm that you're most comfortable in, which is the artistic community-based efforts, and into a really unpleasant, to say the least, political game that you don't deserve to be put into. So one thing I'd like to ask you both, because I'm sure our listeners would want me to ask you this, how can we help? In other words, if we can imagine any way of resurrecting even part of this 
this. And I'll tell you a story about the first Palestine Rights Festival. The, the second one is going to start live September 22nd. But I was on the planning committee for the first one. We had sold out three days of venues in New York City. It was like, and we were partnering with the Schomburg Center. We had a lot of affiliations with black museums, black activists. Angela Davis was going to be one of the keynote speakers. So it was a really a festival about Palestine with lines of solidarity. And literally three weeks before we were going to start in New York City, COVID hit. And we said, what are we going to do? And especially felt that we had already arranged to have a number of Palestinian writers fly in. We had legal representation. We had visas. And we thought the last thing we would want is have them trapped in the United States without visas during COVID. So we said, okay, just forget it. So we went online and it was a massive effort, but I'm wondering what can we do to help you fight this battle? Hopefully, optimally, it would be to have the festival go on, maybe not through the Smithsonian, but through another set of venues. How can we help? I guess that's what I wanted to ask you all. I really appreciate that question. There's definitely within the programming partners and the larger group of collaborators, I think we would all really love to take some time to regroup and figure out what does the future of this festival look like now that this has happened. And really, it, it does feel like an opportunity in some ways to really just like radically reimagine structurally how we put on a festival like this. I think I can speak for most people that like many are still reeling just from the shock and, and the continued hurt of what's happening since the sort of back and forth with Smithsonian officials is still ongoing. I will say that the partners put out an open letter at the start of listing a number of demands to the Smithsonian that would need to be fulfilled if we were to even think about repairing any kind of working relationship with the Smithsonian. And so we're still sharing that letter around and trying to platform those demands because they haven't even been acknowledged. So that's the stage. I will also say that there are folks planning a much smaller scale, grassroots, low-key effort the same weekend mm -hmm. that the festival meant to happen. So August 4th to the 6th, yeah. that weekend, for the folks who either are local, so they're going to be there anyway, or there were folks that they couldn't cancel their travel. Yeah. Like There's a whole contingent coming from New Zealand oh and Australia who had this larger trip booked and this was just going to be one leg. So they, they can't cancel the trip. So there are still going to be a number of folks gathering that weekend, doing readings together and just like being in community with each other. I think that the specifics of what that agenda will look like are, are still to be determined, but we will be advertising that publicly as plans get put in place literally within this next week. So those are the two okay. main efforts that are ongoing right now. Yeah. And did you have anything to add to, in terms of how we can support you? Yeah, I just wanted to respond to the question of why the festival is so I think that, especially in the last few years with the violence during the pandemic, but also I want to mention the event shootings that happened. I think that we need a space to come together to celebrate each other and listen to each other's stories. Mm -hmm. Especially for those of us who aren't often brought to the table. So I think that's why the festival is really important. And I really value the relationships that I've built, both at the 2019 festival, but even in this act of organizing mm -hmm. around the cancellation. So I think for me, just thinking about the trans and non-binary reading room, one thing that has been really great having community folks who have reached out to me and said, hey, this is really important. I still want support trans and non-binary writers during this time. How can I support? So right now we're in a plotting mm -hmm. scene. But, you know, I did do the work to gather the book. Yeah. And I think that we'll be thinking about how to get that still out there and how to collaborate with educators on teaching those folks, how to collaborate with folks who are connected to bookstores or like paid sure. books to buy copies of the book and get those books out there. Great. One of the reasons that I started this podcast was precisely to avoid 
having to work with upper echelon folks and be more directly connected with. And part of our new website is going to have a blog feature. So I'd love for you both to blog on this episode and use it as a resource. I think if you gave us the reading list that you were going to use, Jingen, that'd be fantastic. Kate, you share some petitions or ongoing events. Please remember me and send me the stuff and I will upload it so we can use And hopefully you'll use this podcast to reach out to people too. I can't thank you enough for being on the show. And I understand Kate and, and Jingen, you're both both remarkably resilient, but please be kind to yourselves. Take care of your body as well as your mind. And let's keep in touch and happy to have you back. Thank you so much, David. Yeah, I really appreciate your time. Okay. And your time. okay. Yeah. You're welcome. So much. Please take a moment to like this episode and subscribe to this podcast. This will help bring it to other people's intentions. You might also follow me on Twitter at Palumbo Liu and let us know about any subjects you would like us to cover or people or groups you'd like us to interview.